0: The second book of the New Testament. And I'm thankful that you have been here thus far to celebrate with us all of these things. But we still have some more celebrating to do. And so I hope you come expectantly to the Word of God this morning. As we've started our journey through the New Testament, we've naturally started with the four Gospels, which set the tone for the rest of the New Testament. And remember, as each of these gospel writers were evangelists, they were sharing the good news about Jesus to specific groups of people. They wrote intentionally, constructing these beautiful tapestries of life and, minist- and the, the life and ministry of Jesus to share uh, a unique contour of the full gospel message. That's what we've seen thus far. Is uh, specifically in the book of Matthew, we saw how Jesus is the true and better Moses who has the authority to teach us how to live, and by his death and resurrection, he leads us in a kind of exodus out of the bondage of sin. And remember, we saw last week that Matthew ends his gospel the same way he began it. Jesus and, I mean, uh, the angel uh, telling uh, Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 uh, that you will have a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from from their sins, and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. Right? And then Matthew ends, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Matthew begins and ends the same way. And this morning, we are going to look at Mark and his very concise presentation of how Jesus is this suffering servant who uses all of his strength and all of his power to get underneath us and lift us up to God. And in fact, the theme verse of the book of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to serve... To uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service is an ind- indispensable part of the Christian life, is it not? One person's faithful, sacrificial service, while costly to them, is what God uses to shape the culture and to advance his kingdom. And last month, we saw how God uses our gifts and our skills to advance His uh, kingdom. In fact, if you didn't notice, uh, we hung up that print that we made for uh, Miss Cleta and Miss Anita and Miss Ritha, and they're sewing by sewing ministry. If you didn't get a chance to see that, you can walk out this door right down the ramp, and it's right there in front of you. Just a wonderful testimony of how God uses uh, simple skills in our life to be a blessing beyond the borders of even our country. But this month, I wanted to take a moment and highlight the service of an individual who has the distinct title of being a multi-generational Sunday school teacher. She not only taught one of our pastors in Sunday school, but she has now also taught his children. And I'm talking about Miss Sherry Fournoy. You might have heard the the uh, the, the singing upstairs this morning uh, because Miss Sherry has a birthday on Tuesday. I'm not going to I'm not going to share your age, Miss Sherry, even though your sister will. Um, and, um, but, but, but I, we've got, we've kind of talked about this and I just want to, I just want to help you get an understanding. You have three pastors on this staff, right? Uh, I was born in 1980. Okay. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, that's, I'm, I might be old. Um, but I want to tell you this, Miss Sherry, uh, she could have been my Sunday school teacher, uh, because she's been doing. Uh, young children's Sunday school class since 1985. Just so that you understand, we have two pastors. That was a year before they were born. She's been teaching Sunday school at First Baptist Church all those years. And, and see, the funny thing is, is every time we come to what we call the nominating committee every year, no nominating committee, committee member wants to admit it, but they all have this like sneaking, like who's gonna say no this year? Every single year for over three decades, Miss Sherry said yes to being either a substitute or being a Sunday school teacher of our kids. One of the former members of, of Miss Sherry's class recounts her, uh, her genuine love for each of the kids in her class. And even when they were promoted from her class, she still has expressed an interest and exhibited a true characteristic of Christian love towards them and she still does today and so I know I don't want to get in trouble with Miss Sherry any more than I already am so I'm not gonna make her stand up in front of you but here's what I do want to do right now if you or your child or your grandchild has come through Miss Sherry's Sunday School class would you please stand if you your child or your grandchild has come through Miss Sherry's class please stand Some people build legacies through businesses. Some people build legacies, like we said, through their skills, their vocation that they have. Other people just build legacies by building into other people. And as believers, that's what we're called to do. That's what service is. That's what we're going to see from Jesus today. And so it only seemed right uh, to begin by understanding what we're talking about. We're talking about service. We're not talking about, and just to be honest with you, we're not talking about signing a check, okay, okay? We're not, we're not talking about showing up for Sunday morning just to come to a class. When, when we talk about service, we're talking about being there and being present very purposefully, very intentionally for a very long period of time in a way that leaves a mark on the world. And Ms. Sherry, that's what you've done. Uh, you've left a mark. And, and in fact, I was talking to our, our college class this morning. You have shaped the culture of this community. You've shaped the culture of this church. And now there are kids beyond the walls of this church, out all over, who have, uh, ha- have your mark on them. That's a legacy. That, that's what it means to make an impact. And so for us, as we come to the gospel this morning, we, we want to ask ourselves, how committed am I to really making an impact? How committed am I to following the example of Jesus in my local church, in my community, among my neighbors, among the nations, so that people can hear about Jesus and by his grace surrender to the good news about him. What, we're, what we've seen and what we're going to continue to see today is just that. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the Son of God asking his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And, to, and we saw last week in the book of Matthew that you reveal your answer by submitting to Jesus as Lord and following his teaching. And today we're going to see in the book of Mark that you reveal the answer of who do you say that the Lord is and what are you going to do with his teaching by serving as Christ served. And so let's dive into Mark's gospel to see his testimony about the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 1. You see, part of the, the task of reading the gospels. Part of the task of reading the Gospels is distinguishing them from each other. How do they begin? What do they emphasize? And why did they tell the story that way? This kind of study brings their specific focus to the surface. You see, Mark was the first Gospel to be written about 30 to 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Tradition notes that Mark got much of his material from the Apostle Peter. In fact, if you, if you go through and read the Gospel of Mark, you feel like you had this front row seat. And Peter's emotions are described. They, they just—I mean, you can, you can just, you can just feel the like you're right there beside Jesus as he's saying some of these things. And you, how did Mark get that? Well, it's because Mark was a companion, a friend, and really uh, was a mentee to the Apostle Peter. And so he heard firsthand Peter's account of all of these stories about Jesus. He saw the passion and the intensity in Peter's eyes, because we know Peter was a, a very intense person. We, he saw, Mark saw the passion and the intensity in Peter's eyes as he talked about Jesus. And Mark saw some of these things about Jesus firsthand himself. You see, commentators think that he was writing from Rome. And that Mark's message is targeting Romans and Roman Christians who are being persecuted. And from the very beginning, we jump into this fast-moving story about a purposeful Christ seeking to fulfill a very specific mission. Just look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And immediately you jump into this message of John and, then, and jump down to verse 15. Now, after John was arrested, that, that, is kind of, that ended very quickly. It makes John's ministry seem like a blip, but Mark has a very specific purpose for that. Now, after John was arrested, uh, Jesus came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the gospel of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so you think about what we saw last week in the book of Matthew. And then you think about what we're going to see tonight in the book of Luke, because we're all familiar with it. You have all of, the, all of these details about Jesus' uh, childhood and his birth. You have all uh, Matthew being very specific about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and, and the angelic appearances and all these different kinds of things. Mark just says, I got a message I want you to know what I'm talking about, so let's just jump in and get ready to go. I mean, Mark is like your favorite pastor, right? I mean, if if we're honest, he's he's the shortest one, and he gets to the point quickly. Sorry, okay, Uh, because I'm not necessarily that way. But Mark has a specific message. Matthew emphasizes the words of Jesus, but Mark emphasizes his deeds. He wants us to see and almost like feel what Jesus actually did in his ministry to people on this earth. And over 36 times, through 16 chapters, Mark emphasizes Jesus' quickness to do things by using the word immediately. That's why I said it's his fast-moving story about a very purposeful Messiah moving through uh, Galilee and the surrounding areas. Because over and over, he says, immediately, 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 immediately did Jesus did this. I mean, look at verse 12 of chapter 1. The Spirit, what? What does your Bible say? Immediately, right? The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And so there's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and over 36 times this word immediately is used. And so Mark just wants us to get this feel that Jesus was being very intentional. He was here for a purpose, and nothing was going to distract him from that purpose. Jesus, over the next several chapters, chapters 1 through 7, Jesus is healing people. He's calling his disciples. He's encountering the Pharisees. He does a little teaching. He calms a storm. He heals some more people, feeds 5,000, heals some more people, then feeds 4,000 people. I mean, this is the way that it feels. It's just bam, 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 all throughout the book. But flip on over to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and uh, specifically verse 27, after Jesus uh, heals this blind man at Bethsaida. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you could, you could write above Mark 8, 27, turning point. Turning point. Because throughout these first uh, seven chapters, Mark has very succinctly shown us the nature and the character of Jesus through his deeds. Remember Matthew, you had five blocks of teaching all throughout the center section of uh, the book of Matthew. But not in Mark. Mark, you get some, uh, an explanation of what Jesus has done in his ministry, but then you come to this turning point in Matthew chapter 8, 27, and you think, well, why isn't this like the beginning of Matthew chapter 9? You need to know that these verse references and markers and the subheadings are not inspired. The Spirit of God did not put those in there. So sometimes there's a really bad chapter break, we're going to see more of that uh, in the New Testament. But what we have in chapter 8, verse 27 is this. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? You need to know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story is told along with the next one, the transfigurations. It should show us that it's kind of important. He says, who do people say that I am? In verse 28, they told him. Basically, the people are confused. They don't know who you are, Jesus. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Nobody said, I mean, notice what's not said there. Jesus has done all these miracles. He's fed 5,000, 4,000, thousands upon thousands of people. He's taught with authority. He has healed people from terminal illness. And they still don't get that this is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says, and so. He's asked Peter, who who do the people say that I am? And then he says to Peter specifically, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, which is you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Peter seems to get it, doesn't he? But then Jesus does something strange. Look at verse 31. I mean, look at verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? What? I mean, first of all, let's face it, you're healing people, you're going to have a big following, right? I mean, he's already fed 5,000 and 4,000, he always has a lot of people there. So what's the big secret here, Jesus? Why? I mean, really, like, what do you, because I mean, think about it. When we think about Jesus, we think about the Great Commission, right? Going to all the world and preach the gospel, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I mean, you know, discipling the nations, you're my witnesses of these things. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Why in the world here is Jesus saying, don't tell anybody? And the, here, here's, just let me, let me slap us all in the face. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that when we read this, we don't ask that question because we're just comfortable with the Bible. And we just kind of say what the Bible says, what it says. And I read that like 30 years ago when I was in Sunday school. With Ms. Sherry was my teacher, right? She read that to me. You know, I mean, I read that and, you know, yeah. I mean, so yeah, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. We, we need to stop and be like, what's, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Am I missing something? Like, is there something here that I'm not seeing? Do I need to call Nicholas Cage and get him to like put a code in here somewhere and see if I can figure out there's like a secret message? Why, why is he telling us not to tell anybody? That's because Jesus and Peter are using the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. It's a a big problem in our culture these days. You get on social media, you see what I'm talking about. People use the same vocabulary, but they use a completely different dictionary. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, but don't tell anybody because you don't get it. He seems like he gets it, but he doesn't get it. Peter could be a Southern Baptist. Seems like he gets it on the surface, but below, not so much. Right? And so Jesus tells him in verse 31, look at, I mean, like I said, this is the turning point. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, just think about what's just happened. And now, Peter, once again, you kind of feel Mark hearing this in his eyes. Peter's like, and I don't know why, but after that, I took him aside and I started like telling him he was crazy, right? And Mark's like, You did what? And Peter was like, Yeah, I don't know, man. It just was a bad day. I didn't sleep a lot the night before. And it says, But turning in verse 33, Mark continues, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's confession told the truth about Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who had come to deliver Israel. And Jesus had identified himself as the Messiah by calling himself the Son of Man, which is a title derived from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And just listen to what Daniel said. Daniel envisioned a day that would come when a Son of Man would come, and he he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So if his kingdom's not going to be destroyed, then what's the king going to do? The king's not going to be destroyed either. What's the opposite of not being destroyed? It means you destroy everybody else. You're conquering. You're victorious. And so no wonder... When they proof text and just strip that out of its context without thinking about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and other passages, they just pull that out of context like we do. Once again, we can identify with them. They pull it out of context and they say, well, Jesus has come and he's going to bring a sword. He's going to slaughter all of his enemies. And we're going to be at his right hand. And all of the Romans are going to be down here. They're going to be dead at our feet. And this is going to be great. We are going to be conquerors with him. Jesus is going to conquer. He is the conquering Messiah King. That's what they thought when Jesus said, Son of Man. But once again, Jesus and Peter are using the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. For Peter, the Messiah will come and conquer. But for Jesus, the mission can only be accomplished in one way, by his defeat and his death. Now, you would think that Peter would be assured that Jesus knows the will of God more than he does. But to make sure, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus goes up on a mountain and is transfigured before them. He's transfigured before them, in front of Peter and James and John. Look at this, chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and they led him him up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, white. And no one on earth could bleach them. Interesting. Clorox might use that as a statement, right? And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. It's like the understatement of the millennium, right? Let us make three tents. Three tabernacles, you remember tabernacles, you remember that from the Old Testament, right? Peter's thinking, okay, this is the beginning of the new Israel, and we're going to start, you know, like pushing out the Romans and establishing the kingdom here, because that's what we did when when the tabernacle was given in the Old Testament. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And once again, Jesus, verse 9, the great uncommission, I guess, like as they were coming down to the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Once again, you, you get Mark hearing this from peter like peter just like we had no idea what he was talking about and it sounded like crazy talk we saw moses we saw elijah i said this is great that we're here you know and jesus just says stop talking just don't talk about this until i rise from the dead and peter just wrestling with this even as he talks to mark you can feel it in his words And they asked him, verse 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Talking about John the Baptist. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And that's just where it stops. But from this point forward in Mark's gospel, Jesus sets his sight upon Jerusalem and namely his own death. And chapter 10 reminds us, chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so throughout the rest of the book, Jesus heals people some more. He teaches some more. He celebrates the Passover with his his disciples. But then you know the rest of the story, that he's betrayed, that he's tortured, that he's mocked, condemned, and crucified. And all this time, people are wondering, who is this Jesus who heals, teaches with authority, and stands against the Jewish religious leaders? No one, I mean, no one gets it. They're all confused. And you just, as you read the Gospel of Mark, you just get this, that people are confused. And they're saying, why in the world is Jesus dead? But then Mark 16, I mean, at the, but you get these these two, these two stories, there's only two stories throughout the whole book of people who get it. Even the book ends with people not getting it, okay? So that's why they know Mark was written very early, because people were still wrestling with these things. They knew what they had seen, but they struggled with what it meant, right? They, they were kind of in process. And so Mark actually just gives us two glimpses of people who got the truth about Jesus. One was from Mark chapter 7. And it was the humble faith of a Gentile woman. Now, remember the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles were Romans. They were Phoenicians. They were all different kinds of people, but they weren't Jews. That's the the only qualification for being a Gentile is you're not a Jew. And so they went, and this Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus, and she, she says, basically, Jesus, I know I'm not worthy of your intervention, but would you please give me a little miracle, and would you heal my daughter? I know I don't deserve it, is, is essentially what she says. And Jesus commends her for understanding the truth about how to approach him, namely that she should do it in humility, and faith. And so Jesus unleashes his power to serve her and heals her sick child. And so we, when we look at that picture of one person who got it, Mark chapter 7, we recognize how do we approach God? We approach him in humility, knowing that he serves us by his strength, and then transforms us so that we can serve others. It's the first thing we get from the people who got it. But then the last one is Mark chapter 15 and the centurion. Look at Mark chapter 15 verse 45. I'm sorry, verse uh, verse 39. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. So Jesus has been crucified. He's been mocked. He's been tortured. He's he's a bloody mess up on the cross. He's being reviled by people who are around him and underneath him. And Jesus, we know from Luke and others that he forgave this one of the thieves that was beside him. But in verse 39, when this centurion, centurions were not Jews, once again, they were Gentiles, they were Romans, they were hated by the Jews, he stood facing them and he saw in this way that he breathed his last and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. He gets it. How can the Jews have all of the Old Testament? And all of the promises, and all of the covenants, and all of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they miss it. And here are these two Gentiles, and they get it. It's because they come in humble faith and recognition of the truth about who He is. They look at His deeds, they're challenged by them, and then they respond. And so Mark obviously included these stories to appeal to his target group of the Romans to to say to them, See? It's not just for the Jews. You guys can do it too. You can put your faith in Jesus too. Jesus has come for you as well. The only two people in the entire gospel who got it were people just like you. We say that to you as well. But then look at how the gospel ends. Mark chapter 16, verse six, verse six and seven and eight. Mark tells them that when Jesus rose again, that the tomb was empty and that there was an angel in that tomb, who said, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he, was, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and in astonishment, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anybody. Once again, they're not talking, for they were afraid. And that's how the Gospel of Mark ends. And later on, some disciples of Mark were like, that's a horrible ending. Like, surely we can do better than that, guys. And so some of the disciples of Mark came later on and they said, they said, we remember, because remember, Mark is weaving together a tapestry of accounts from all over the place. And so some of his disciples said, well, you remember Mark told that story about that other thing? And, and, and that's, they added that ending about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and appearing to the two disciples and then giving them the Great Commission. And there's nothing in that that conflicts with any other gospel, which is why they have it as a footnote or as an as a addition with a little subheading there uh, in your Bible. But we know that some of the earliest manuscripts didn't include that. But the fact that verse 8 says that they, their response was, was basically they were scared to death and too terrified to say anything to anybody and they ran away. Mark intentionally leaves it that way for us because he's essentially having a question hang in your mind. What are you going to do with the truth about Jesus? And what does it truly mean to follow his example in faithful, sacrificial service to others? This man named Steve Schriebner is a pilot with American Airlines. He's been a pilot for about 27 years. And it was Monday afternoon, September 10th, 2001, that Shrevenor got a notification that he'd been assigned to fly from Boston's Logan Airport the following morning. The computer had assigned his name to the trip, so his wife, Megan, pictured with him here, she went to work ironing his uniform right after she shooed their eight kids, uh, yeah, you heard me, eight kids outside to enjoy the fall weather. And Shrevenor added, he said, typically a scheduler would call and confirm But within 30 minutes he got another notification saying that a senior pilot, Tom McGinnis, had decided to take the flight in his place. Hours later, both pilots went to bed, and the next morning McGinnis showed up for work and piloted American Airlines Flight 11, which was the first plane that was overtaken by terrorists and crashed into the World Trade Center. Shrevener says, I'm living on borrowed time. He said, I can mark on the calendar the day I should have died. And he went on to say, I thought to myself, I've got to stop living like a Sunday saint. Someday I'm going to do this. Someday, someday I'm going to do that. And keep making one excuse after another, keeping God's will for my life at arm's length. Like Schriebner, most of the moments that we face We make choices, and some of them we don't even see coming. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, most of the moments that transform our lives involve choices that we make. And his encouragement to you today, because 17 years ago he says, I should have died. The encouragement that he would say to you today is, what are you going to do with the truth about who Jesus is? Hey, First Baptist Church, it's time to wake up. Like, it's time to really decide if you're going to continue to be someday saints and say, someday we're going to do this and that. Someday we're going to start following the will of God. Someday we're going to start serving. Someday we're going to start giving. Someday we're going to... You just fill in the blank. Because like I said to you earlier, you have a testimony of three people this morning who said, God told me to do this and I did it. Right? And we emphasize the, the, the testimony of, uh, of Miss Sherry. 33 years. She might wish it was a little bit less, but 33 years saying, God told me, God's told me to serve. And so I don't know anything else but to do that. And what do we say in both cases? Did it take sacrifice? Absolutely. But did obedience to God's will bring life to you and to others? Absolutely. So what are you waiting for? Like, seriously, what are you waiting for? Keeping God's will at arm's length, it does no good for anybody. You can't go on being a Sunday saint, because even though you didn't almost pilot one of the planes that went into the World Trade Center, you're still living on borrowed time too. And James chapter 4 tells you not to be a Sunday saint, because you don't know if some days are ever going to come. If God's calling you today, then guess what he intends for you to respond today. God is not waiting. I mean, uh, you should not be waiting for God to answer all your questions and fill in all the blanks about all the questions that you're asking. Because God is not doing that. That's not how faith operates. But instead, faith says, yes, Lord, and then trust God with the consequences. Some of you are in critical stages of your life right now where you've got to stop keeping the will of God at arm's length so that you can discover the will of God for your life in obedience. It's like Mr. Benny Ward told you a long time ago. There's going to be some things you don't understand until you just obey them. And so, obedience can sometimes look crazy. 33 years in a kid's Sunday school class to a lot of people looks crazy. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, is that if you want what God wants and you want life for you and for the people around you, then the only answer to the Lord is yes. Yes. God, because of what you've done for me. Yes. A thousand times yes. Yes. I hold nothing back. I I don't want anything more or less than your will for my life. I'm not going to keep you at arm's length anymore. Some of you need to say yes to that today. And I don't know what those decisions are, but you do. And so that's what this time of invitation is all about. It's an opportunity for you to say yes. It's an opportunity for you to say, Jesus, I recognize you served me in this way. And because I see that you served me by dying on a cross to save me from my sins, then I, I want to know you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to follow you with my life. I want to follow you in believer's baptism. I want to follow you and do your will for the rest of my life. That's what some of you need to say. Others of you, you have things that are going on in your life that you're going to be faced with when you look at your phone, if you hadn't already done it already, which you probably have, uh, that text message that vibrated in your pocket while you were here of somebody who is trying to tell you something or get you to do something or somebody who is trying to get you to walk a certain path or make some huge cataclysmic decision in your life. You're, You're being faced with those kind of situations today. And my friend, the only way to go is God's way. That's the only way that brings life. You have these areas and relationships that exist in your life where God said, well, you need to forgive that person. You're like, I don't want to forgive that person. It looks crazy to forgive that person. But guess what you need to do to bring life to you and the people around you? You need to forgive that person. You need to reconcile a relationship. You need to step into areas of service. Friend, do you realize that this church and some of our ministries, we're just like a couple of months away from those ministries dying because people won't serve? Or we got, listen, we've got people who have, like Ms. Sherry, have served for, for decades, but there's nobody following along after them. We, we have legitimate legitimate needs where God says, Ryan, and it says to me as a pastor, Ryan, I put the people there. I'm just, you're just waiting on them to say yes. And so I'm just asking you today, what are you saying wait instead of yes in? And recognize today that Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, because Jesus came to serve you and obeyed to the point of death so that you could find life, and what are you going to do with that life? My prayer is, is that you will pour yourself into the way God's called you. You'll pour yourself into ministry. You'll pour yourself into the people around you, into your family, into your church family, into your Sunday school class, into the kids of this church, into the senior adults of this church. That you will pour yourself into wherever God has directed you and say, yes, because, because, not because it makes sense, but because you trust him and he's good. And you've had testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony today that service and obedience brings life. And so how do you need to respond? Today's the day. Don't say wait. Today's the day. I'll be down front if you need to respond publicly. Let's pray together.